0: What's happening, people? Welcome back. My guest today is Stephen Bartlett. He's a founder of Social Chain, an entrepreneur, and an author. Building a business, buying fast cars, and becoming a millionaire is the peak of some people's dreams. But does achieving that actually satisfy you and create success? Or does it leave you hollow inside? And is it possible to achieve material success alongside meaningful fulfillment? So today, expect to learn why £13 in a chicken shop feels more satisfying than being listed on a stock exchange, why Stephen's billionaire friends are miserable, how to develop the skill of quitting, why Stephen left dinner to do a bodyweight workout in his hotel room, and much more. Stephen is one of the most famous and most followed entrepreneurs in the UK. And um, I got to spend a bit of time with him in Dubai, and then through this conversation here, there's certain elements, and I'll see if you notice it as well, There are certain times when he drops into a particular mode of speaking and shows little glimpses of the drive that he's got inside himself, particularly the story around leaving uh, dinner to go and do this bodyweight workout. Just listen to the way that he speaks. I think there's an awful lot that we can take from the philosophy and underlying principles that Stephen's following here. In... Other news, in fact, before I get to in other news, uh, if you are new to the channel or if you're a long time subscriber, press the subscribe button, please. It will take you two seconds of your day and it makes me very happy and it means that you do not miss any of the amazing episodes that we've got coming up with. Dr. Jordan Peterson, one of the world's most sought-after podcast guests and two-times-amazing-selling author. Brian Green, one of the world's best-selling physicists and a fascinating human who broke the internet on Joe Rogan last week. And Stephen Kotler, one of the world's experts in flow research and peak performance. You do not want to miss these episodes, and if you've not pressed subscribe, then you might do. So go, go, and, go and give it a little tap for me right now. I thank you. In those other newses, this episode is brought to you by My Protein. I am super, super happy to be partnered up with My Protein. They are a company I've used for years and years. If you are looking to get anything that you need to improve your health ready for the gyms to reopen, My Protein is the place to start. Head to bit.ly/slash modern That's bit.ly/slash modern wisdom. And you can see all of the products that I use. And recommend from my protein all of my favorite proteins, my favorite snacks, the supplements that I use. I often get asked, what do you think that I should start taking if I'm going to get into the gym? That question, it has been answered. Head to bit.ly slash modernwisdom. And if you use the code modernwisdom, it gives you the maximum discount available for anything at any time, even during sales. So if there are extra discounts available, you do not need to go chasing for codes. Modern Wisdom, one word, will give you the maximum discount available. It's like the ring, the ring of Sauron. One code to rule them all. uh, And that's it, Modern Wisdom. MyProtein are the number one sports nutrition brand in the world. This deal is available worldwide in America, in Australia, and in the UK, plus everywhere else too. And there's 12 million customers who rely on MyProtein to give them their supplement needs. I've used them for years. If you use them as well, get that Modern Wisdom code in there and head to bit.ly slash modernwisdom to check out everything that I use and recommend. Get to yourself ready to lose that lockdown weight. In other, other news, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes things interfere with your happiness or prevent you from achieving your goals. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in your area. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't even have to leave the house. BetterHelp are committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. I've been saying for years that far more people than realize it would benefit massively from therapy. You don't need to have something wrong to want to make the state of mind that you exist in better. The number of people who don't think twice about getting a PT but haven't considered getting a therapist blows my mind. You could benefit hugely by having someone professional just so that you can talk through the things that have perhaps been a burden for years. And BetterHelp want you to start living a happier life today. You can get 10% Ten percent off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash modern wisdom. That's better. H E L P dot com slash modern wisdom and you will automatically get that ten percent discount off your first month. Over one million people have taken charge of their mental health with the help of BetterHelp. betterhelp.com slash modern wisdom. <sighs> but now it's time for the wise and wonderful Stephen Bartlett. First off, mate, I need to say thank you for dinner, because the last time that we were together, we were overlooking downtown Dubai, and you invited me and a buddy out for a really wonderful evening dinner. But then as you left, I was in the toilet, so I haven't actually got to say goodbye. So thanks for dinner, mate, and also welcome in the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I I left abruptly because I had a, a flight to catch that night, and my suitcases were actually downstairs. So when my PA grabbed me and said, "You know, you've got to go now," I just I quickly scrambled and uh, exited the building. But yeah, thank you. It was good to good to meet you and catch up with you and such. And I'm excited to be on your podcast today.
0: Yeah, me too, man. So why did you write a book? You've got a lot of stuff <laughs> online already. Like, why do you need a book mm-hmm. as an outlet?
1: You know what? I, I've uh, there's a couple of you, you make a really good point. Um, we live in an era of you know, instantaneous feedback, and um, I'm a I'm a connected from birth. Um, I'm part of the connected from birth generation where I've had, you know, some form of online connection for my whole life, and things have got even more um, superficial and ephemeral um, as I've as I've got older. So you're right, I've got millions of followers online. If I've got a message to communicate, why don't I just do an Instagram story or something? which gives me that sort of instant feedback and i think in fact that was um paradoxically why i needed to write the book because of the way that the world was is heading and the the lack of meaning and how shallow um uh and surface level things are getting and for me the book were, it, the book is the antithesis of that it is depth it's meaning it's something you you spend two years doing and then once you're done you still have another years wait until it's published. And um, it was a chance to really... There's so many things with books that I came to learn that you don't get with social media as well. One of the real big things, which I think changes the way you create your ideas, is you because you don't get instant feedback or pretty much no, not a lot of feedback at all. There's no comment section. You write with a certain level of freedom, which is quite rare these days. So I got to go deeper than I've ever gone before. I know that if I write a page, um, it's not going to be discussed instantaneously and I think that allows thoughts and ideas to connect in a different way so just for me it was a bit of an experiment to be honest something I put off for a long time but um just to conclude that point there was one day where I looked at my diary from when I was 18 years old and in the front page of it I'd basically written that I wanted to be a happy sexy millionaire and I I read that when I was 26 and I you know built this massive business and I was traveling from one country to another and that was the moment where I thought I wanted to write the book because it dawned on me how dumb I was to aim for that and how many other people are.
0: An interesting point around the instant feedback. I had Seth Godin on the show, and he said Um, that about a decade or a decade and a half ago, he removed comments from his blog. Remembering he's one of the biggest bloggers on the planet. And people say, yeah. you can't remove comments from your blog. It's a blog. You're not allowed to do that. And he was like, well, I know if I leave comments on, I'll just add an extra caveat here and a little bit of a justification yeah. there because you're writing to preempt what people are going to say back. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, um, the low-tech solution of just words on a piece of paper is, uh, is good. The title as well, Happy Sexy Millionaire, we tempted to call it just be consistent for a really long time.
1: No, so the the title, as I say, comes from when I was eighteen years old. So I'm I'm an eighteen year old kid. I arrive in Manchester, and um, I decide that I'm going to drop out of university. I know what I want from my life. I've it's for me, it's pretty non negotiable that I'm going to become, one way or the other, a very successful multimillionaire at a very young age. That was it was always from the age of fourteen. I was con- I got to the point at 14, 15, where I was so convinced that that was going to happen. Um, with no evidence and no understanding of the, the, the future world that I would face. But I was so convinced. So I arrived in Manchester at 18 years old, realized that this degree wasn't going to give me what I needed to to get to where I needed to go. And I uh, dropped out and then wrote in the first page of that diary, which I've posted on Facebook, if anyone wants to check it out. I just wrote four four goals that I have before I'm 25. A Range Rover Sport was going to be my first car. Um, I was going to make a million pounds before I was 25. I was going to work on my body because I was super skinny. Um, and I was going to f- have a long-term relationship with a girl. Four very simple life goals. I wanted to be uh, sexy and rich because I thought that would make me happy. And that's that's where the the book starts. Where does that self-belief come from? It's a great question. And I think I'm always super scared of um, indulging in like hindsight bullshit where you, you look back and you say, oh, this, this and this, and this is why I am the way I am. I think largely like 70% of the time, 80% of the time, we don't know. But if I was if I was to hypothesize logically where belief comes from generally um other beliefs that I have uh, the answer is clearly evidence right some form of um evidence that you have and and what you sort of derive from that evidence and uh, uh, the example that I give and I think I give this example in my book as well is I talk about if I was to try and make you believe that I was Allah or Jesus Christ right now and I held your your mother hostage at gunpoint and told you to to take that belief on the only way I'm going to believe, the only way I'm going to release your mother from gunpoint is if you start to believe that I'm Jesus Christ, right? You, you couldn't believe it. You couldn't genuinely believe it, even if everything was on the line. And so I, I used to think about that. And so, okay, well, if that's, if we can't, if we don't actually choose our beliefs, we choose our faith. Right, we we can have faith in something or somebody, but we don't actually choose our belief. Where are they coming from? That in that same analogy, if I take this bottle here full of water and I turn it into wine, and then I start levitating, your belief stop might start to change as it relates to me being, you know, a deity or something. And so you ref, you take that back and you say, okay, so if our if our beliefs are based on some kind of evidence we have and what we derive from that, maybe our self belief is too. Maybe, you know, maybe we're compounding a set of personal case studies in our life that are telling us that we are capable of something or that we're not. And it tends to be the case that from the things that I've read anyway, that the positive case studies upwards are slower. So I can, I do one thing. I speak on stage in front of 10 people. I'm like, okay. And then I can do 15 the next day. But when it compounds downwards against you, when your self-belief or any belief compounds downwards, it's rapid. You go on stage and speak in front of 10 people. They heckle you. You forget your words you never going. trying to get back to that stage again is, it's, it's tough. And so I think from a very young age, because of my parents' absence, they weren't around when I was, when I was younger and I was growing, I was basically raising myself from about 10 years old. I, I learned this very important connections, the connection that I hope my kids one day have, which is if I'm going to get something, whether it's dinner money or the nice pair of shoes that I want because I'm broke and all the other kids have them, it's going to come from my own actions and behavior. And you learn that at 10 years old, that if, if you're going to get shoes or football, you know, whatever, lunch, it's going to come from something you do. So that sense of independence created a, created a, helped me create a bunch of case studies for myself and some social factors I think are what gave me my sense of self-belief. That would be my, that would be my guess.
0: I think that you're right. And it highlights something I've been thinking about for a long time. We presume in 2021, because people conflate the words confidence with extroversion and being charismatic and outgoing. All of these words move in the same sort of fields, but confidence isn't the same. Confidence isn't given, it's earned. Naval Ravikant has this quote where he says, self-esteem is the reputation you have with yourself. You'll always Mm -hmm. know. And a lot of the time, I think people want the self-belief, the outcome, the I can achieve anything mentality when they have zero evidence that it's going to actually happen. And this is yeah. where small wins come in, right? Clean your room, make yeah. your bed, do the little things and build up. And that's what you've said, the progressive overload.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the, this is why I've always been, I've always had this allergic reaction to this idea of like pure play visualization. Because it's it's such a dumb thing to me. This idea of that there's almost this emerging culture where people will get up in the morning, they'll repeat these three affirmations, and it's kind of like my analogy of just saying that you think I'm Jesus because your mum's going to die. Like they'll look in the mirror and say, I am strong, I am powerful, I am whatever. And then they'll, they'll write on their little, little list of visualizations that I'm going to be a millionaire. And like, but they haven't built any personal case studies. They don't actually believe at all what they're saying. It's just a bunch of nonsense. We're like in their own self-esteem values, just a bunch of like wishy-washy. The difference is at 18 years old, I believed I was capable. And I used to say to people at the time, I was like, if you tell me, that i have to go to mars this week my brain defaults to like find out how to make it happen not it's not possible or why won't it happen and for some i had that because of a set of case studies that preceded that moment and some people don't and this is why like yeah i'm i'm quite against the whole secret um lifestyle that some people live where it's it's all about visualization and and not enough about you know small compounding efforts in the right direction yeah
0: we're in the same page there. What does the things that invalidated you when you were younger or the things which will validate you when you're older mean?
1: Yeah. So I think the quote from the book is the things that invalidated you when you're younger will be the th- things you seek validation from when you're older. And you can, you can, that can be anything, right? So for me, I was, imagine this, I come from Africa as a two-year-old kid and you put me in an area where everybody is richer than me. Everybody is, has a different hair hair color than me. Everybody has a different skin color than me. You put me into a street where everyone's house is perfect, right? Perfect, like out of a movie. And mine has six foot grass and fridges and TVs in the in the in the front garden, back garden. The front window of my house is smashed. So this is already a kid that has some kind of insecurity at that age as well. And so I was invalidated by that. I was invalidated because the things that made me feel invalid or insecure were like money. And the fact that I could never have a girlfriend or have a girlfriend come over to my house because it was a shithole. hole. And so as I got older, you get to 18, you're like, I'm going to try and fill that hole. And so the things that had invalidated me when I was a kid, which was like um, female attention or money or whatever it was, became the things that were most valuable to me in my perception to, to, um, to seek and to chase when I was older. And you see this no matter who you speak to whether it's your dad invalidated you by you know giving you the impression that you could never be like him or you weren't good enough and then you know most of my billionaire friends i think two of my billionaire friends and i haven't got that many of them uh, both of them have almost an identical story where their dad invalidated them when they were younger these are two billionaires you would know and they spent their the you know their early years ruthlessly chasing that validation from somewhere um yeah
0: isn't it interesting that in the meritocracy, quantifiable metrics of success world that we live in now, that we can look at someone that has the billion pounds, but the completely uninternalized, unactualized sense of self love and consider them a success because we never yeah. get an externalized scorecard of their internal state?
1: Yeah. And this is like a lot of the work that I'm sure you do, but like what I try and do with my podcast as well is I've had, you know, One of the best things that ever happened to me was I was an 18 year old kid, 19, 20, maybe 19 or 20, probably about 20 years old. And I got to meet the guy I wanted to be. Who was that? Imagine that. So I can't say his name. Okay. But he is a young billionaire. So I got to meet the guy that I wanted to be when I was that age. He was, he was like a couple of years older than me, maybe seven years older than me. He had his nine sports cars, right? So he's probably at the time, he's probably 29 and I'm 22. Mansion billionaire like young kid running a business whatever and I got to meet him and I got to get to know him I got to go to his house I got to have private conversations with him conversations with him at 5am and I got to go around his house and look at all of the things that I thought I wanted from my life that's probably the most important experience I ever had I got to go into his Louis Vuitton room upstairs and look at all of the Louis Vuitton bags he had nine rooms full of uh, fur coats Louis Vuitton one trainer room which is bigger than my house now And it's all rainbow, like perfectly color-coordinated all the way around the room. And then I got to go downstairs and speak to the guy for hours. And he became a friend. He's been my friend for about five or six years. And miserable. (laughs) Miserable and um, probably the last person I'd actually want to be. But on the surface he, ha- he had, he was the mousetrap. He was everything I was chasing, everything I thought I wanted. But when I got to go behind the scenes, the last person on planet Earth that I want to be, m- deeply miserable and tormented. And he wants to be normal, normal, in his own words. He said to me one day, he, he sometimes goes to supermarkets and puts stuff in the trolley just to act like he's a normal person. And, and he doesn't actually buy this. And it's just, I was just like, fuck. You know, you've got it all wrong. Stop. And and this is again part of the inspiration for the book, which is like, I got to see that stuff before I, I I got to you know run down that hedonistic treadmill, and it and it helped me turn back. Yeah. Can you tell us about
0: this story about the cushions in the chicken shop and the satisfaction <laughs> for millions of pounds? I really uh, like that. Yeah,
1: jokes. Yeah, so I remember this day very vividly. I was actually I didn't write about write his name in in the book, but I was with my friend Anthony Logan. I think you might have met Anthony.
0: We did in did Dubai. You meet Anthony Logan? Yeah, yeah so that with, next him. So I was
1: with yeah, so I was with Anthony Logan in Manchester, this this uh, place called Living Room. And um I was really really broke at this point, to the point where like I genuinely on a day-to-day basis, didn't have a pound to, to feed myself. So I was taking every day at a time while I was trying to start my business. And I went into this place called Living Room, which is this like takeaway place, this food place. And I'm sat there and I put my hands, I think I think a pound coin fell out of my pocket. And as I went, reached down to, to retrieve it, um, more there was so much more money down the sofa. And I just went around all of the sofas in this it's like restaurant place and i managed to retrieve about 13 pounds in total and i it was like the best day of my life at the point i was at in my life where i was living in Moss in a above a chinese takeaway in a house that was battered and full of rats finding these pound coins in that um in that restaurant that day felt like a gift from god and i absolute an absolute euphoria and i think what i write about in the book is that day that moment where i found that 13 quid which meant that i could eat for maybe the next 10 days or so was was like 30 times more euphoric than the day I woke up in that five-star hotel in Manchester. And I looked at my phone and someone had texted me saying, oh, the company's now public. And, you know, you do the mental math about how much money that means you now have. Um, and I just felt total, totally numb. And I contrast those two moments in, in my book. And this is where I kind of start to introduce the idea of like, you know, bring the Stoic philosophy into play and and why those, and, and contrast and, and why those moments felt so different. The day that I became, you know, a multi-multi-millionaire versus the day that I found 13 pounds in a chicken shop um, I, I, were, were two completely different days. One was euphoria and one was um, anti-climax. It's actually when you expect something to be a certain way, when you expect it to be euphoric and it's not, it actually becomes a negative, which is interesting so when it, when you and this is the whole idea of like I mean this is a, a general principle about expectation and reality, like the difference between what you expect and what you what you get is your level of satisfaction, and in that moment i was I've always expected that day where I became a multimillionaire to be confetti and marching bands and euphoria. So when it wasn't, and when it came in below my expectation, it was actually a big negative, yeah, until i uh yeah until I did some mind games.
0: Can we sink into that time? How do you get yourself to a place where you can leave your company? This is, as you say, a young kid who's never really had money, who's never really had quantifiable metrics of success. A lot of people would struggle to give up the good for the great. Is is quitting a skill
1: in that way? Yeah, quitting is definitely a skill and it's really underrated. I think you know people spend a ton of time... You know, words are really shitty. This is one thing that I I really came to learn in my book. Is most of the time, which when we try and answer difficult life questions, we get trapped in words. And like, I love you. Do you love them? Is is this your passion? We 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 forget that these are actually human words that some other guy made and attached some um, definition to that they felt or they were trying to describe in their life at that time. And so it's like crazy. As I'm writing this book, I'm I'm trying to answer these questions. And then, like most of the time, the question is answered by questioning the question, something we just never do. We accept words, right? Um, And to get to your point about quitting, one of the things we hear in society, which has really held people back a set of words is like quitting is for losers, right? You're quitting is seen as this really, really bad thing. You don't, you just prevail. But, But then they glamorize starting, and starting is seen as this, you know, this you know, amazing to be admired adventure that people go on, whether it's starting a business or a hobby or whatever. And but the crazy thing is the often unappreciated, but very important necessary thing you do before you start something else is you quit something and quitting and starting go hand in hand, right? In all facets of our life, like a monkey swinging through the jungle in Costa Rica, they have to let go of the last branch in order to grab the next. Quitting in itself is just as much of a skill as knowing when and what to start. And in my life, quitting decisions have quite literally defined me, quitting school, quitting university, quitting my first company, Wallpark, where I'd still be now trying to make it work. Um, quitting social chain more recently. And I see quitting as a skill. In the book, I talk about this quitting framework I've devised, which will hopefully give people a bit of a, 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 a guardrail or sort of a, yeah, a bit of a flowchart um, to consider when they're deciding to quit something. I've quit effortlessly my whole life and I've never known why. I've never known why quitting has always been so easy for me. But but when I got time to write out what my brain is doing, um, it started to make very logical sense. I'm very, very logical in the way that I think. And quitting has always been easy. So I presumed it was some kind of logical flow chart. And what's, that's what I... Uh, what's the I process? Out. So if you're thinking about quitting something, whether it's a relationship or a job or whatever, and I wish I had my book in front of me, because it's, it is it is quite an extensive... Oh, I do. You're actually leaning <laughs> on <laughs> This is like a... <laughs> We're going to drop down by about an area. inch and
0: a half. Get the book out. Okay. And then we've okay, got go the... here. Fine. Fine.
1: So, um, I want to run you through this because I actually think it's really important. And I've never... Nobody's ever given me this before in my life in terms of like a framework for deciding when to quit something. And it's also something that I would love to like... I would love to debate with people because I was alone in a jungle when I wrote this. And... Um, here we go. So the chapter is called I Quit My Job, and it's chapter 11 in my book. And I've drawn this very useful little flow chart you can see here. So the first question is, are you thinking about quitting something? Right? And you, that's either yes or no. If the answer is no, why are well, you looking at the fucking flow chart? If the answer is yes, <laughs> go to the next chapter, innit? Uh, if the answer is yes, I ask you, why are you thinking about quitting? And there's typically two reasons why people are thinking about quitting. And I, le- I make these words intentionally um ambiguous so because something sucks or because it's hard right and if it sucks that for me means it's toxic it's un- it's um it's intrinsically unfulfilling whatever it might be in your own definition if it's hard it's because it's a challenge right you're not qualified to do it um it's difficult like running a marathon you're on the 22nd mile or whatever if you're th- if you're trying to quit because it's hard is the challenge worth the potential reward? This is kind of the question I've always asked myself. So in the hardest moments of my business, in, which were always in the first years, it was really, really hard. But the potential reward in my mind was worth the hardship. So if, it's, if the answer to that question is yes, don't quit. If you're doing something hard that isn't worth the potential rewards, quit, right? Let's move to the other side of the, 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 the um, flow chart say you're thinking about quitting because it sucks, which is actually where I found myself in with my company. It started to suck, right? It wasn't hard, it sucked. Um, Do you believe you could make it not suck? Question I asked myself all the time. Do I think I could go and have the meetings I need to have with the board and with other people to make this company, for me, the company doesn't suck, it's a great company, for me, the experience for me and what I want out of my life not suck? If the answer is yes, you then ask yourself that question again, which is, is the effort it would take to make it not suck, that traveling around the world persuading you worth it. Yes or no? And so, if it's if it's not worth it, if you think that you it would require a year of your life, a million conversations, a gazillion conversations, and it's not actually worth the rewards to to put that effort in, then you quit. If not, don't quit. Do the work, fix it, and you get it right. However, I got to the point where I thought that the effort it was required to make. The experience for me, not suck anymore, wasn't actually any worth the rewards anymore. I was an 18 year old kid that started, you know, 20, well, I started that business at 21, T- started the business at 21, got really diluted. As you get diluted as a young guy, you lose, you give up control. You can't take back, you know, shareholder control. Um, the business had got bigger. I didn't have the control I wanted to have over the the, the the top level things. And I also owned a small piece of the company by this point. And so you have those two factors there where it's a, it's going to be take a lot of effort to change it, but the rewards on offer for you as an entrepreneur aren't actually that great anymore. So this led me to this part on the flow chart where I was thinking about quitting. I didn't believe that anymore that I could make it not suck and the effort to make it not suck wasn't going to be worth it. So I ended up quitting. And this is a framework you can basically use for everything, I think. It's simplified enough for you to, you know, make it work for you and to make sense for you and, uh and hopefully for the reader as well.
0: Having just come out of social chain, how did you decide what you were going to do next?
1: <sighs> it's a really good point. It's a really good point. I, um, I, I, I went off to the jungle in Costa Rica to spend some time alone with my thoughts, which is actually when I started writing the book. And I think it's chapter 10 or something in the book, where 10 or 11, where I start thinking about that. And um, I realized that the tempting thing to do is just to go and do the same thing again. But there's a number of problems with that. You know one of the things that I discuss in the book that makes humans intrinsically motivated is challenge and the challenge of doing the same thing again when you're the type of person that I am is um is not very um not very challenging to say the least right um, and the next thing that played on my mind was why why I would go and do the next thing again, and it's because of comfort. It's because so- I have this label that's been given to me as by society and by my past and by my accomplishments, which is social media CEO. And there's this temptation to ne- to then spend the next ten years of my life living out those labels, right? To to think that's who I am and to 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 play the uh, pl- follow the implicit instructions of those labels. And I, I, I dwelled on that and thought that this is probably why a lot of people get themselves into these like midlife crises where they, they lose their intrinsic joy for their work and they 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 start to question who they were because they let society or their past or their mum define who they are. And then they just played that role until they got to 41 years old. They're working at KPMG and they're thinking about jumping out the window. And so I thought the most the most intrinsically rewarding way I could probably live my life was to resist my labels and to go back to these, because labels as well, they're just a bunch of really unhelpful words that we give ourselves to make ourselves make sense. So I thought, you know, go back to the fundamentals. What am I, right? Who is, who am I? I'm a guy with a bunch of skills that loves so many things. I don't have one singular passion. I have tons of passions. I like music and playing with my dog and my niece. And I like art and I like video games and FIFA and football and business. I didn't like social media. Like I'm not a, I didn't come out of the womb. My passion wasn't social media. Social media didn't exist when I came out of the womb. So how could that be my innate passion anyway? But there's principles about that job and that I did like. I liked working with teams. I liked having a big ambition. I liked the challenge. I liked um, storytelling. And these are things that can can apply to any industry so I resisted my labels. And over the last, since I've left, about nine months, I think it's been now, six or nine months, somewhere in that region, um, I've just resisted my labels. I wrote a book. I, I've learned to DJ. I'm, I've got a big theatrical show that I've sold out in Manchester, written and directed by me. The music's done by me. I've been working in a, one of the biggest biotech companies in the world um, in the mental health space for the last six months, a $3 billion biotech company. I've been working at Huel, which is the fastest growing um, like consumer, it was the fastest growing e-commerce company internationally in the UK, I'm on the board there. Um, I'm about to accept a, another board role at one of the fastest growing companies in a completely different industry, in the beauty industry. And why the fuck not? I, I thought to myself that like, you know, this is, what I, this is how I would behave if I truly resisted my labels. And, I, and my inspirations that hang on the walls in some of my rooms in this house, Elon Musk or Kanye West, I don't love all of their ideas, but the thing I love and admire most about those individuals was they didn't let their past or a label or anything define define them. Um, Elon, you know, Zip2, PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla, Neuralink and Kanye started as a producer. And they said, you're a producer, you can't rap. I mean, not only rap, he put on shows and clothes and shoes and choirs and everything. And that inspires me. I think that's a free way to live. I think everybody, the vast majority, 99% of people don't live freely. They live confined by words um, that you know, their mum or dad or themselves have given them. And those words are restrictive. And why be restrictive? I'm going to die anyway. It doesn't fucking matter. So (laughs) yeah, I think
0: think one of the central themes of your book is to remind people that much of what we're told by the culture at the moment will not make them truly happy or fulfilled. Identifying that is great. But how can people actually rid themselves of those internalized values that don't serve them?
1: I think one of the easiest ways to do it if I had to just give a simple way, it's like to constantly question the question. Um, Maybe that's my single greatest skill or gift. I say gift because it's not that intentional it seems to be, it just seems to be what happens when someone presents me with something. A good example is my book promo. promo. So we're doing my book promotion today. And I said to my publisher, like, you know, they said, oh, what we do is we get like an envelope and we put the the book in an envelope and send it out to people. And I was like, but this, you know, that, that's not necessarily a great idea because we want these influencers to post. So what we'll do is we'll print hundred dollar bills. And Chris, if you get your box, it will have your face on it. It comes with this like mirror, it says, happy, this big, like Instagramable box. And we'll send we won't send a hundred, we'll send a thousand. And I'm and they go, oh no, but that's not how it's done. Why would you do that? And I'm like, well, think about it from a psychological perspective. If I see something three times in a short period of time, if we can get them all delivered on the same day, we get the world's biggest influences. To, like this is, and, but they go, no, but that's not how it's meant to be done. You, and then they're like, oh no, but you can't print money. That's like illegal. You can't put the money. Like, and, and that moment there is, uh, this, that is a perfect mo- metaphor for the slow, the slow, pr- the slow almost subtle force that you'll face many times a day in your life of life just saying like stick to the blueprint like and stick to convention and it's that little bit of resistance where you've got to turn and say no we're going to do it this way and for me that was at 16 when I decided that school wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to go or university day one where I call my mom and I say mom listen I'm dropping out of university and she says I'm not going to speak to you until you go back didn't speak to her for two years those and, and subtly it was when I started to promote the book and if you look at Instagram today We probably had, I was trying to do the numbers. I was like, probably had 500,000 pounds in free marketing today alone. Sent out a thousand books. I reckon I've been tagged already, you know, today. What time is it? It's like 5 p.m. today. And most of my friends haven't got it yet. Maybe 500 or 600 times. These influencers, some of them have 3 million followers. That one moment of resistance where life, in this case, my publisher was like, no, 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 that's not the way it's always been done. Um, And having the conviction to resist and think in terms of first principles, um, is the most important thing for me. And like, I've built the case study now, so you can't tell me otherwise. And a lot of people haven't built the case studies. Like you built the case study for yourself. It's much easier to resist in those moments uh, and to rely on your first principles. But uh, yeah, I've built the case. So you, I, there's no going back for me now. I can't unsee what I know. So it's thinking in terms of first principles. And very honestly, that's just about questioning the question. Every like When you come to promote this podcast, you will do what you did last time. That's what like most people do, and I do the same thing. And like what I do with my team now is I'm like, what is the like one percent marginal gain? What is the like one new idea based on first principles to try and get that one percent? And that's a that's a mental philosophy, which is continually like questioning the question and trying to think of new ideas, even though it requires much more sort of mental effort. Yeah. I agree, man. If you do that in your life, you'll 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 go somewhere else. If you if you're able to do that in your life, it's just tough, and it it's apparently scary. And I say apparently because in fact the most scary thing is not doing that, but trying to con- trying to persuade people of that is probably an argument I won't win. Just like the Jesus bullet mother head analogy I give, like trying to convince you that the fear, uh, the thing that you should fear, is not taking a risk, is a battle I probably won't win.
0: Well, my TEDx talk, which I recorded a couple of weeks ago, had a section in this which is quoted from mutual friend of ours, George McGill, although I wasn't able to actually reference him on the slides, but I I quoted him directly from an episode I did in your old office upstairs. Oh, yeah. And Ollie was filming it. And um, it's talking about the fact that I'm astounded by how many people want to be spectacular in life but also want to be normal. By being normal, Mm -hmm. you are, by definition, aiming for average – Mm. You regress to the mean by doing what everyone else does. By doing what everyone else does, you get what everyone else has got. Normal people get normal results. Weird people get weird results. You call it questioning the question. I call it assessing assumptions. Like we all Mm. have assumptions about the world, about how things should be done, about the way that we're supposed to release a book, the way that we're supposed to release a podcast, construct a conversation, all of these things. But when you assess your assumptions and its first principles is now the sort of buzzword of the last few years popularized by shane Parrish and elon musk but what i find interesting about what you just said there is that it's innate because what a lot of people want it Maybe may have been, but it, it may have been developed but that it's mm. something that's built into your source code because yeah. there are there are people who struggle to rebel and there are people mm. who find rebelling a little bit easier um
1: yeah yeah I think it might be somewhat connected to my self-belief because and like what you've just described there where you said you know everybody wants to be extraordinary but everyone also wants to be normal is like it's like because risk and reward like we all we all want no risk which is being normal you know safety do like stay within the the sheep pen and then we all want a gazillion pounds and to live an extraordinary life which is the reward so like of course we none of us want risk but we want to optimize reward and like I think that maybe that ability to question—you think—what does it take to to think from first principles and to write your own script? It takes fucking guts for a start because you are quite literally writing a new blueprint. It's like walking down—you know—I used to live in the woods and I'd walk this path every single day to get home, and then I you know I look I look up and I look up the hill, and and I think, well, I actually live there. So why am I walking this path, which is going to be like a mile down this way, then it's going to cut right? When I theoretically could just cut up this hill and go straight to my house. And this is like a metaphor for life again. It's like, well, but this is the path and there might be snakes there and there's not like a carved out, smooth, you know, way for you to walk. And so what does it take to go up there? It takes a a sense of adventure. Where does that come from? That comes from probably nurture. It takes some self-belief. It takes the, the conviction and the confidence to be wrong. Which again probably comes from self esteem, right? Because if I walk up this path and I get up there and I, you know, everyone laughs at me and says, "Well, there's a big fence. You fucked up." You know, that that takes a certain sense of self esteem. People don't want to risk their self esteem, especially when they have a, a weak self esteem. Um, so may, maybe it's more nurtured than I I think. But the, but what I'm saying is now it feels innate. I I, I can't I can't um, pretend that I. Yeah, but and I don't choose it on a daily basis. Like the argument with my publisher, it felt like that was the right thing. And it was, I was fighting for what I knew was right. I wasn't think I didn't sit back and think, okay, let's think first principles here and then start like writing out on a piece of paper. That's what I mean by it feels almost innate now. It's so second nature to me to question the question and to not accept questions when they're asked. And the one I talk about in the book, I think there's a chapter on it. I say, I think, because I'm not sometimes I'm not sure if it's a chapter or just a section. Um, which is, no, it is a, it is a chapter. It says, mum, stop asking me about love. And it's like, you come home and your mum says, oh, you're dating Melanie, are you? Yeah. Are you in love? And that moment of like, oh shit, now I have to answer either yes or no. And I, my definition of love has to be exactly the same as hers. And if it's no, then fuck, what's wrong? Right but and if it's yeah, you know, and then like but if it's yes, then that means I'm getting married, and the pr- the unnecessary pressure to like slide into one of these binary boxes doesn't help my relationship with my girlfriend. Do you know what I mean so why are we why do we fuck around with these questions when they're like really unhelpful and and what that's another thing I uncover in the book, which is like how invalid questions so many of the questions we ask ourselves are you know I, I think I say in the book as the example, what number is blue? And it's a perfectly reasonable question because you know what numbers are and you know what blue is. So what number is blue? And it's the same thing. Are you in love? Have Is this your passion? Uh, you know what you are. You know what passion is. So are you, just because you can put to, like, just because you can ask a question doesn't make it mean it's valid or worth answering or worth stressing over or worth overthinking over. And like 70% of the young kids in my DMs, are messaging me because they've trapped, they've, they're imprisoned by a question that society is trying to make them answer. Steve, I'm 22 and I haven't found my passion, and they're like, they're like, ver- some of them are like verging on suicidal because of these questions. Genuinely, you look like you. I'm like, bro, fuck, I don't know what my fucking passion is either. Just like, stop asking yourself shitty questions and like follow your your joy and do more of the stuff you like and less of the stuff you don't like and that kind of foundational thinking and not this sort of binary jump in this box um, thinking is, is freeing again. And it lets you live a more, yeah, peaceful life.
0: If people shouldn't be trying to find their passion, what's a better question that they should be asking themselves?
1: So the problem with the word passion is it's it's inherently binary. It's like inherently too binary, but it also comes with a definition that you don't actually know, right? So like a good example would be, a good example is like the word like love or passion. Like I love my dog. I love Marmite. I love my girlfriend. I love my mom. Lamborghinis. I love, 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 love. We spray this word around. So like Ubiquitously, that we don't actually know what it really means. And it means different things, apparently, in different situations. And so, if someone comes to you and says, Do you love Jenny? And you think, Well, fucking like, oh, God, you know, I I don't know what you mean. I have to understand your definition of that to understand if I can fit in the box you've just asked me to jump in. Um, With the passion question, I tend to ask myself in my life, It's like, Am I enjoying this? You could ask yourself, Am I happy? Do I um, do I feel good? These are like more foundational questions, which are subjective, and it doesn't require me to know your def- definition of the words and then to fit into it in a binary way. That's probably what I ask myself in my life, which is like, does this feel good? And as it relates to my time at social chain, in the end, it didn't feel good anymore. And as I say in the, my quitting framework, I didn't think I could change it, and even if I could change it, I didn't think it would be worth it. So super easy decision, not brave, not courageous. <laughs> cor- brave to stay. Imagine something not feeling good. You don't think you can change it and you, do, uh, you 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 think you might be able to change it, but the rewards of changing it aren't worth it and you stay. That takes courage. I don't have courage. Like people say this when I dropped out of Universal. Like, oh, you're so brave. No, 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 no. Brave would have been staying in a situation I hated and, and toughing it out. That's courage. You know what I mean? So again, this is a, the war of words and how it ruins people's lives.
0: I get it. I think... The main thing that I learned from 1984 reading that is the volume of your vocabulary and the accuracy of the words that you use directly influences the quality of your thoughts. And what you're relating to here is that any word is just Mm -hmm. the nearest approximation for a notion that you have in your head. All of the things, all the things, the emotions, the concepts that you're trying to convey, you find the nearest possible term linguistically apply it to that, and then try and get across something which is subtly, slightly different. We all, uh, Schadenfreude, German has some wonderful words that we don't have. And this is one of the interesting things about hearing them because you go, oh, that's almost like a thing that I didn't know. It's like a thing that didn't exist until there was a word for it. Mm -hmm. And And this is
1: exactly, yeah, exactly what Elon talks about with Neuralink as well and why they're, you know, he talks about the loss in communication, but also um, how, if in terms of like computers and the bandwidth they have versus like our vocabulary, I think it's the same thing. The most foundational thing that I, the most foundational vocabulary I have, if if you were to call it a vocabulary, is like how I feel and my sensory experience. And then you're right. I try and communicate it with another person um, using these words that we've all agreed mean something but you've experienced one thing I've experienced it and we've said that the word is love is is that the same thing you and there's a loss in there's loss in translation there and that's why I try and take it, I try and take take it back to foundational things which is like how do you feel because maybe that's your first language and maybe it's the language which is easiest to articulate for most people like we know we have we, we're quite good at understanding how we feel but these societal instagram movie magazine inspired words like Bay and love and passion these ones are confusing for me and there's a greater loss in translation when they come with all this baggage and especially when they're really important words like love and passion these are the most important decisions we make in our life and we've distilled it to four letters and we all have to say yes or no this is a risky fucking game to play and and that's why i wrote the book the chapter the chapter in my book about like Mum, stop asking me about love because i'm like this is not an interesting this is a dangerous and risky a useless question to ask me.
0: Talking about Instagram, how is following Kylie Jenner a type of self-harm?
1: Yeah, this is something that I thought about a lot in the in the book because you know I've got a lot of Instagram friends, a lot of girls that are Instagram influencers that I've known for a long time, and they seem to have a five x greater prevalence of mental health disorders. I've always wondered why that was. Then I spoke to Johanna Hari, the you know the famous author of Lost Connections, and. He, after reading his book and having him on my podcast, he talked about the nine real reasons why people are getting depressed and anxious. And it started to make a bit more sense to me. And then I went and did my own reading and studying for my book. And a lot of what I was looking at is how our mind works and how it makes its decisions and how it makes these split comparison-oriented oriented decisions that we needed to make in order to survive, you know, 10,000 years ago, when a lion's running at you, you think, okay, fucking run. Or when something happens and you, you can't over-process or turn to, you know, Deep logical thought to find answers, you have to make split decisions. We see it today. The studies show that if you present someone with three steaks on a menu, one's really expensive, one's middle and one's cheap, they'll think the top one's too bougie, the bottom one's a shit steak and the middle one's probably the one. So they'll pick the middle one. If in a TV shop, they give you three TVs on a wall and there's, you know, the the top one's super expensive, the same thing, they'll pick the middle one. And even in more other ways that, you know, this thing I write about in the book where They did a study. They said, would you be willing to drive, um, I think it's an hour to save 10 pounds on a 200 pound jacket or an hour to save 10 pounds on a 10 pound jacket. It's an hour and you're saving 10 pounds. But the way people make that decision is totally different. They think, well, I'd rather drive the hour to save 10 pounds on a 20 pound jacket, but it's an hour of your time and a 10 pound. These aren't logical decisions. And the same applies for Instagram. We make very, um... and another example that I'd like to give is, I remember when I got my first phone, my, my Nokia brick phone, and I could play snake on it. I remember feeling like the bee's knees in school. Going into school, I had polyphonic ringtones. I was the man, my big aerial. If I had that phone today, how would I feel? And I pondered that question, you know, like if I, if I had that phone today in a, in, a, in a world full of iPhones, how would I feel? I would feel ashamed because the value, the, the phone hasn't changed. The Nokia phone is the same, same game, same ringtones, everything. But the context, in which it exists has changed. And that in the human mind changes as it does with the menu and the TVs, the perceived value of that thing. And this is what's happening on Instagram is I know me. I look in the mirror every single day. When I look down into this phone, I'm making very snap comparison oriented judgments about my own value, my own appearance, my own body based on what I see. But what you're seeing is fake. And I speak to a cosmetic surgeon and he says, oh my God, this is the best era ever for my business because girls are coming in with photos from Instagram. He said, I've never had more Instagram references ever for surgery in my life. And now they, they all want to change their bodies. He said, the biggest rise we've seen is girls coming in with a photo of Kylie Jenner or the Kardashians, and they want to change the shape of their body. And also the Facetune CEO says he's sat on a gold mine because people are looking at Instagram. The brain does what it does. Lazy as hell, comparison orientated. It's telling you that because she looks like that, you are a piece of shit. You can't avoid that. That's what I said there's a chapter called fire your mind. You can't stop that. You can't tell me I'm going to stop doing comparisons. This is why like half my quotes I know don't actually help because you can't just say stuff like the Jesus analogy. You can't just tell yourself to stop comparing. It's a survival mechanism. But unfortunately in the era we live in, that is killing your self-esteem. It is, it's toxic for your mind. And that's why I say uh, stop keeping up with the Kardashians. I think that's one of the chapters, chapter four.
0: There is a statistically significant increase in cosmetic surgery called the Zoom boom of lockdown face. (laughs) And it's because of the amount of people that have been looking at themselves for six hours a day plus on video conferencing calls. And um, yeah, plastic surgeons have been reporting that. T. John's from up here. Mr. Esho, Dr. Esho is from up here in Newcastle originally. Um, So I've been sort of following his work for a while as well. One of the things that I thought was really Can I just interesting... Can
1: say something on that as well? Yeah, sure. So, like, think about the term fat. Like, It doesn't sound like a comparison, but then remove everybody from planet Earth. And suddenly you're not fat. You're the prettiest, sexiest, richest person on Earth. You are by definition enough suddenly just because I removed everybody else. And we don't actually realize that most of these adjectives or descriptive words are just comparison based. And I would be the sexiest man alive. You would if also I could just kill everyone else.
0: You would also be the unsexiest man alive. You would also be the fattest man alive. You would also be the this. 100%. And this is naturally what happens. You come from a hierarchical background ancestrally, and you compare: who am I above? Who am I below? You continue to aim up. You continue to kind of dispose of the people that 100%. are down. Um, do you find that creeping in with yourself? Like obviously, you do this self-work, you do the same as me. We oh, spend a yeah, lot of time doing gratitude question. journaling and mm. internal work. How do you, when you notice that creeping in, that ego, that self-talk, that destructive monologue, what do you do? Mm.
1: It's a good question. So it's, it's a really interesting one because there's so many contradictions here. Like I'm someone, and I, I discuss this in the book. Like I really, In fact, the 20th chapter is kind of trying to answer the contradiction between believing that you're enough whilst also striving for so much more. Always felt like a contradiction I just couldn't understand. And then again, I, I as I get into the, the chapter, it's actually just, a, am making a mistake with a bunch of words. Enough sounds like, you know, this idea that I wasn't enough sounds like some kind of like internal measure of my self-worth that came from somewhere. And the truth is it did. It came from my perception of the outside world and external validation. I thought that when I was broke, I was less than. And so I strive to be more than or to get to the point where I was enough. And in fact, the whole time, I've always been the same. There's never been a change in my in- intrinsic, inherent value. That was just external um, like status games that I was playing in my mind. So I wanted to get myself to this point where I knew that I was enough because that was that's the foundation you need to chase the right things for the right reasons. For example, my friend who I described earlier, the billionaire friend with all the clothes and the houses and the sports cars, this is a guy that doesn't know he's enough yet. So he thinks by getting a room full of trainers and color coordinating them, that will make him enough. So he started chasing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. The most important thing for me was getting myself to that point where I knew that intrinsically, no matter what I did, no matter how successful I become, my inherent value doesn't change. Um, And then that has become the platform to be competitive and chase and be aggressive at the things that really matter to me. And that's the phase in life where I'm at now, where when I'm chasing something, when I want to be number one at something or I want to be the best at something, I'm largely doing it. Not completely. I'm largely doing it because the prize at the end of that is worthwhile intrinsically for me. So I can channel that like ambition and that competitiveness and that desire to be number one and to win. But knowing that when I get there, or if I get there, because a lot of the time I set myself goals that I don't think I'll ever even achieve, um, the journey will be intrinsically rewarding. That's been a big thing. And as you say, like, do I find myself in moments seeking external validation or not thinking I'm enough? I'd say yeah, but just like ninety ninety five percent less than I used to. Maybe more, maybe 97 percent or something in that region. Less I'm really glad 50%. to.
0: I'm really glad to hear that. Man, like, it's really um, encouraging to know, especially coming from the background in the industry that you were in right? Like you were weaponizing the platforms that you're now criticizing. Your company was built off the back of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that insight obviously has enabled you to transform more effectively personally. I've got Mm -hmm. a story actually that you told while we were out at dinner. And this kind of highlights, I think what you're talking about here, that you're prepared to do things just because you want to win at them and you're prepared to put effort in. You were talking mm. about, I want to say that you were at some sort of conference or maybe a race event, and you and your friends were competing about who could get the most calories burned on their Apple watch. <laughs> and you noticed yeah, one of your friends time. on a Sunday night at the end of the week was in the gym training. So you decided yeah. to excuse yourself and then go and run sprints on a set of stairs mm.
1: nearby? I was, I was at dinner with like Philip Green's family, the very notorious billionaire. I was in Monaco. They'd invited me for dinner. Uh, first time I'd met the full family, um, yeah, very important dinner in this beautiful, beautiful restaurant in Monaco. And me and my friends have spent ten weeks, tre- every week competing against each other, six friends to see who can do the most calories. But then also you can compete individually at the same time. I'd never lost. I never lost. I wouldn't allow myself to lose. So for nine weeks I hadn't lost. I'm in the tenth week. I'm at the dinner. It's um, 11 o'clock. It shuts. The competition closes at midnight. And I look down and I just see Don McGregor, my old business partner, who's in the group. I see him doing a workout at 11, quarter past 11 or something like that. And I'm at this dinner. And yeah, I have a personal philosophy where like, I'm not going to voluntarily lose. Something else might be the reason I lose, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be a decision that I make. And it is a decision. So I said, just going to, I said to the people at dinner, I said, I'm just going to excuse myself. I'm just going to walk back to the hotel. I fucking sprint back to the hotel across the street. I'm up in the fucking, the bathroom in the the hotel and I, I put my phone recording and I start recording a video for them in the group. And I start doing a hit workout and I'm I'm screaming at the phone. I'm telling them, I'm saying, never try that again. You never try and do me like that again. And I beat them. And I never lost. I never lost that competition. I've competed against all of them individually for 10 weeks and then the whole group collectively. And I wouldn't lose. And I don't let myself lose. Because for me, it doesn't matter. But it's a, that it's you're setting a personal philosophy for yourself every single day and every decision you make. I talk to my team about that, but I also talk to them individually. Like, I'm like, it, are you going to allow that thing to be part of your personal philosophy? Like the way that you conduct yourself. So for me, in that moment, had I let myself lose, like made the decision that I was going to lose, then... Somewhere in my brain, I think, well, that kind of thinking will then creep into other areas of my life that are probably more important, especially as they compound over time. So I just make the decision that I'm not going to choose to lose. And that was that story. But it's an insight into the way that I, the way that I think.
0: I love that story, man. That's why I have remembered it. What do you think Stephen, 10 years from now, would tell Stephen now?
1: I mean, the only way that I could answer that question is by going back the other way and saying like, what would 28-year-old Stephen have told 18-year-old Stephen? So, because that's all I know now, now, right? So that's experience that I can draw upon. And he, I would have told 18-year-old Stephen, like, it's funny because I ask people this question, like really successful people, and they all tend to answer the same way. They all said- Are you going to do like, the
0: same thing? Are you going to fob no, me no, up I'm with a an repurposed so answer I, from them?
1: <laughs> like, I, have, I asked Ria Ferdinand last week, I asked uh, Ant Middleton, and they all say- Nothing. No, Noel Clark was the one I asked. They all say nothing because it might like upset, the, you know, the domino effect of the thing that led me here. But for me, it would have just been more conviction. It would have been like experiment even more and and fail faster. I think you know, I'm 28 now. I think I could have got to where I am now by probably about 26, 25, 24, if I just failed faster, had more conviction, and then the other thing is focus. So. And these, it's almost like a bit of a paradox for me to... No, it's almost a bit of a contradiction for me to say to experiment more, but to focus, right? But when you choose your experiments, you you double down and you move fast and hard and aggressively in that direction. And, and, and the worst possible case scenario is doing loads of experiments, but with with low focus, right? So now in the phase of my life that I'm in, every experiment I do, I pick more selectively and I apply more focus, whether that's in my business, my personal brand, my podcast, whatever it is, my book, um, and that's the point of conviction. I think it will get me there faster. It will allow me to achieve more, and it will uh, accelerate my personal development and bring the day where I'm my best version of myself one step closer. Although that that day will never, never arrive.
0: It's always going to keep moving away, man. Thank you it's, so yeah, much. It's been uh, it's been long overdue catch up since we were last together yeah, thank in Dubai. You, bro
1: you're killing it and i love i love what you're what you stand for it's such a powerful podcast that you have and i think you're getting the you're getting the credit that you deserve for the content you produce and it's not it doesn't take long for i think someone that's making great stuff there's a bit of a lag on it sometimes to get the credit they deserve for what they're producing and your consistency is inspiring as well because that's the thing that i think sort of comes before great success. It's just someone that shows up every day and just, you know, follows, just does something that they love. So if I could bet, if you were a stock and I could invest, I would invest.
0: Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. My dad used to say form is temporary, but class is permanent. And uh, yeah. I've always, I've always held that with me. Happy Sexy Millionaire will be linked in the show notes below. Usually when I talk about the book, I like pick it up like this (laughs) but um it's currently at the royal mail depot for me to go and collect so i'm gonna do that before it closes yeah what a bastard um so (laughs) i'm gonna go and collect it but man um congratulations really well done seeing someone who's young from the uk swimming in the circles that you do and personally for me as well utilizing a team the way that you do personal branding team small focused um it's really inspiring in, in, the, in the right form of the word, right? It's somebody who's grinding through the operations, who's being very open and transparent about the things that they do and about their failures. And um, long may it continue, dude. I think the UK's lagged behind in this sort of yeah. arena, whatever you want to call it, this sense-making, insight, sort of entrepreneurial vision world for far too long. And it's our language Right. So mm. if you're part of the <laughs> if you're part of the, the sort of the, the new age of the British Empire, then so be it. <laughs> I
1: love that. Yeah, it's so true. No, you're so you're so you're so right. And, the, you know, at some point you get the temptation. People say, oh, go to L.A. They try and persuade you to go out there. And You're going, going out for a
0: month. You know? Don't say that. I know that you're uh, going out for a month in a couple of weeks time.
1: Well, maybe. We'll see. what happens. <laughs> but no, it's good. It's really good to see people from the from the UK like yourself that are like, creating global platforms because we're told in the uk to just focus on people around you know in, nationally so it's nice to see you know you've got killer killer guests coming on your podcast and that's a testament to to you know what you've been able to build here so well done it's amazing
0: thank you brother look until next thank time you. man uh we will catch up good luck with the rest of the book tour everything will be linked in the show notes below inc- including steve's fantastic podcast go and check it out but for now man thank you
1: thank you thanks <laughs>
0: Thank you very much for tuning in. Did you enjoy that? Of course you did. Press subscribe and you will never miss another episode again. Also, don't forget that you can receive the maximum discount available all year round from MyProtein by going to bit.ly slash modernwisdom. That's bitly slash modernwisdom and using the code modernwisdom for the maximum discount that MyProtein has available. Also, you can get 10% off your first month of counselling with BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash modern wisdom. That's com slash modern wisdom. You could upgrade the texture of your mind and BetterHelp are here to assist you in achieving it. But for now, goodbye, friends.